0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On this episode of the Food Junkies podcast, we have one of our favorite food addiction supporters, Dr. Robert Lustig. He even included a chapter in his new book on food addiction, specifically addressing what we here on our show already know processed food is not only toxic, it's addictive. In his new book, he addresses nutrition, food science, global health, and explains how by focusing on real food, we can reverse chronic disease. He even includes a chapter on assembling clues how to diagnose yourself. We love Dr. Robert Lustig because he challenges the current health paradigm and the influence of big food, big pharma, and big government. He believes the food business, by pushing processed food loaded with sugar, has hacked our bodies and our minds to pursue pleasure instead of happiness, fostering today's epidemics of addiction and depression. In his opinion, if we just focus on eating real food, we can beat the odds against sugar, processed food, obesity, and food addiction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lustig. Hi, I'm Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am co-host today of Food Junkies podcast,
1: along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Robert Lustig, one of the most foremost leaders in the fields of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and food addiction. Dr. Lustig is Professor Emeritus of Pediatric Endocrinology at University of California. You may know him by his 209 YouTube video gone viral called Sugar, the Bitter Truth, which has apparently had more than 13 million views. He's also been on a number of documentaries, all of which are must sees Fat Fictions, Sugar Coated, Fed Up, The Skinny on Obesity, and That Sugar Film. He is author to three best selling books Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains, and lastly, the book that we are here to talk about today, Metabolical, The Lore and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Lustig.
2: Well, thank you, Vera, but you know, now that you've given that introduction, I think we can all go home.
1: Yes. Okay. So I have finished reading this book and I have to say for listeners that there is so much information in this book. We're only going to be able to cover a few pertinent areas. But one of the things that we must talk about is obesity and the difference between obesity and metabolic syndrome, because that is really the key piece. And then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the issues behind that. So Dr. Lustig, you're a comedian. I don't know if people know that, but uh,
2: first of all, first of all, Vera, if you call me Dr. Lustig one more time, I'm just okay. gonna reach through I'm gonna reach through the computer and I'm okay. gonna
1: All right okay well thank you. Robert, you are quite funny in a number of places, but anyway, and also very pithy in other ways. And one of the things you say is obesity is not the problem, it's just a symptom. In fact, it's a red herring. The real disease is, and do you want to elaborate, please?
2: Absolutely. So first of all, everyone thinks it's about obesity. Obesity is associated with all these other diseases, and that is true. It is associated. But association doesn't mean causation. In fact, 20% of obese people are metabolically healthy. We have a name for them, MHO, metabolically healthy obese. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They even have normal length telomeres the edges of the chromosomes that unravel to ultimately lead to cellular dysfunction, cell death, and ultimately human death. 20%. Okay. Now it's true. 80% are metabolically ill. I don't argue that. Of course that's true. However, here's the key. 40% of the normal weight population have the exact same diseases as do the obese. Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, all the diseases of metabolic syndrome, and they're not fat. And they get it for the exact same reasons as do the obese. They're just not obese. So if normal weight people get it too, how can it be about behavior? This actually looks more like exposure. This looks like cholera, tuberculosis, or influenza, or COVID-19 for that matter. Or some people get it and some people don't. And you don't necessarily know why, all right? But, you know, they're all living amongst the whole thing. So it's it's not just one group. And the other thing is that if thin sick people have the same disease as the fat sick people, why are the thin sick people calling the fat sick people the problem? hmm Okay, and when you do the math on the two of them together, the sick population is greater than 50 percent of the entire U.S. adult population. All right. So that's a public health crisis.
1: You have in your book that 89 percent of the population has some level of metabolic syndrome.
2: Right. So study that was done in 2017 out of North Carolina said that 88 percent of the entire U.S. population shows signs of metabolic dysfunction in one shape or other. The simplest blood test to be able to determine that is a fasting insulin. So fasting insulin that's elevated, that's metabolic dysfunction because why is your insulin not working right? All right? So if that's the case, that means a lot of normal weight people have this too. And that's the point of metabolic syndrome is that normal weight people, even thin people can get it as well. Now, the thing that explains this is the concept of three separate fat depots. Now, only one of those fat depots can you see. Only one of those fat depots can you measure when you stand on a scale. Only one of those fat depots shows up in your BMI, body mass index. So let's talk about these three fat depots and their contributions. So the first fat depot is the one that everybody knows, okay? It's your spare tire. All right, it's your subcutaneous or big butt fat. Big butt fat. Butt fat. Okay, Okay. it's the best way to describe it. Okay, cosmetically undesirable, but metabolically essentially inert. Okay, this is not the problem. May look bad in a swimsuit, of either sex, mind you. All right, but from a purely metabolic standpoint, not necessarily dangerous. All right. Now you can gain about. 10 to 15 kilos, depending on who you are, before that metabolic dysfunction will occur from subcutaneous adiposity. And the reason likely that you have to gain that much weight before you see something in your metabolic machinery is because when the blood drains out of the subcutaneous fat, it goes straight into the systemic circulation, right? So it's diluted by your entire blood volume. Okay. and you have six liters of blood. So whatever the fat cells are draining, it's you know in terms of cytokines or in terms of any other you know bad proteins or potentially infectious uh, agents, et cetera. It's going to be diluted by you know in, in the entire volume of distribution of the body. So 10 to 15 kilos. Second fat depot, big belly fat, okay? Not your spare tire, but specifically, you know what's going on around your middle okay visceral fat visceral fat is not subcutaneous fat number 1 it has different cytokine dynamics it has different genetics and most importantly it has different anatomy because the visceral fat does not drain into the systemic circulation the visceral fat drains into the portal vein and the portal vein goes directly to the liver and it is that those cytokines that are hitting the liver that determine whether or not something is gonna be dangerous or not. And so because all of the visceral fat drains directly into the liver, the liver's getting a much higher concentration at a lower amount of visceral fat. So the amount of visceral fat that you can accumulate before you start seeing metabolic dysfunction is more like about two kilos, four pounds, maybe five. Okay, And you may not see that on the scale, or you may not see that even in your dress size but you might see it in your waist circumference. And the reason we know this is true is because there are patients who are actually losing weight and still becoming metabolically more dysfunctional. Clinical depression, as an example. Patients with clinical depression lose weight because they don't eat. They lose weight, but they gain visceral fat. And as they gain visceral fat, their cytokines go up. And so they end up with metabolic dysfunction because, higher levels of cytokines are hitting the liver directly. So visceral fat's worse than subcutaneous fat. We've known that for decades, the apples and the pears, that's that. And then there's the third fat depot, the liver fat itself, okay, fat made right in the liver. And it turns out that's the most egregious fat because you only need a little bit of that to cause significant liver dysfunction and insulin resistance maybe 200 grams, half a pound, Mm -hmm. all right? So for subcutaneous fat, you need 10 kilos, 22 pounds. For visceral fat, you need about two kilos, about four and a half pounds. And for liver fat, you only need a half a pound. Now you think you're gonna see half a pound on a scale? Forget it, right? But it turns out that liver fat is the most egregious of all. And so what is creating that liver fat? Sugar. And the reason we know that is because that's triglycerides. So triglycerides, the same as VLDL, very low density lipoproteins. And those are made in the liver with sugar as the substrate through a process called de novo lipogenesis, new fat making. And so when the liver can export it out, it's serum triglyceride, in which case that could be a source for cardiovascular disease or obesity. But when it stays in the liver, when it doesn't make it out, when it precipitates as a lipid droplet, now you have fatty liver disease and now you have insulin resistance. Now you have risk for type two diabetes and all the other chronic metabolic diseases that go along with it. So three different fat depots, three different inherent risks, and two of them you can't see.
1: And can I just jump on that for our listeners, that this is why when we talk about fat and the worry about fat, this is not about fat phobia, it's not about fat shaming, because the kind not of fat that we see is actually the subcutaneous, which is the benign kind. We're That's talking right. about the stuff we don't see that is really dangerous and leads to metabolic syndrome. One of the questions that I was going to ask you, thank you for uh, making those distinctions, was you're kind of moving into the LDL um, and the cholesterol. Can you give a little, shed a little bit of light on some of the myths that we've been drummed? like we have to worry about cholesterol and, and just clarify that if you can in three sentences. If
2: you All, right. Can. All right. So the short answer is we got sidetracked. Mm-hmm. We got sidetracked by a molecule called LDL. Now. LDL is a bad guy. I'm not making him a good guy, all right? He's a bad guy, but he's not nearly as bad as the other bad guy, okay? All right? It's like the Jesse James gang. You know, none of them were good, but maybe one of them was worse. (laughs) All right? turns out triglycerides are way worse than LDL. The hazard risk ratio of LDL for heart disease is 1.3. So if you have a high LDL, you have a 30% increased risk of having a heart attack. True. I mean, that's not good. And that's statistically significant. And I'm not arguing, you know, we should let our LDLs go up to to sky high. However, the hazard risk ratio for triglycerides and heart disease is 1.8, much higher. Now, the reason we focused on LDL was twofold. First, we figured out what raised LDL early, dietary fat which is true, that's still true. Okay, and we also came up with a medicine, statins, which is also true. And statins will lower your LDL. I don't argue that either. The question is, does that alleviate your risk for a heart attack? And the answer is, when you do all the data analysis, when you look at the meta-analyses, the number of days gained in life <laughs> we taking a statin for primary prevention of heart disease is a total of four days.
1: Four days. And how much how much are you spending each month?
2: Well, I don't know how much any given person's spending. It depends on their insurance, but yeah, yeah. ultimately that this is a 67 billion dollar industry. Yeah. yeah. For four days. Now, if you've had a heart attack already, now you're talking about secondary prevention of a second heart attack. Mm -hmm. then statins actually seem to be very useful. There's a much better hazard risk ratio and benefit ratio. So it's not that statins are useless. They have a use. It's just that not everybody needs them. And the question is, is your LDL the problem or is it your triglycerides that are the problem? To be honest with you, most doctors don't even know what a triglyceride is. And they don't know what to do about it if it is high. And they don't understand where it came from. And they don't understand what it portends. They don't understand what the cause of it is. And if they did, then maybe we could actually start solving this
1: problem. Okay, so what's the answer? This is why I wrote the book. Yes.
2: So triglycerides basically come from de novo lipogenesis, which comes from sugar because the liver can't metabolize all the sugar that's hitting it. The fructose molecule has a limited capacity for metabolism. You know, our TCA cycle only runs so fast. And when you flood your liver with a tsunami of a soft drink or, you know, a breakfast cereal or whatever, your liver is basically being hit with too much for the, its ability to be able to clear it. And so the excess goes via a different pathway in the liver called the citrate shuttle and ends up being converted into liver fat. Okay. Right. And that liver fat then gets packaged as ApoB100 to form VLDL, very low density lipoproteins. When those get released from the liver, that's serum triglyceride. Okay. Basically, your serum triglyceride is the same as your sugar consumption.
1: Right. I can only say that I see that clinically when I see my alcoholics come in and they have outrageously high triglycerides because, of course, what alcohol? Yeah.
2: Well, the point is sugar and alcohol are metabolized exactly the same in the liver. So it's no surprise that you would get the hypertriglyceridemia of alcohol or the hypertriglyceridemia of sugar consumption, which is why my kids in my obesity clinic have high triglycerides.
1: Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, so when you get but, rid of the sugar, yeah, the yeah.
2: triglycerides fall by 50% in nine days. Right. In nine days.
1: Yeah. So it would make a lot more sense as clinicians for us to reduce the sugar rather than focus on the statins and et cetera.
2: Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. That's the point. And that's what doctors don't know. They just know, oh, high LDL. They read it off the side of the uh, lab slip hl you know that's 10 bucks by the way you know that that's an interpretation so they see the high ldl so they say oh you need a statin." garbage garbage okay Okay. now if your ldl is over 300 and if your triglycerides are also low that person is one in 500 okay Has a high ld super high ldl and a low triglyceride that person probably is a heterozygote for familial hypercholesterolemia, which is one in 500. I happen to be one of them. Okay. And those people do need statins.
1: Okay, for people who are really interested in this science, by the way, and the clinical science, you have a great two or three chapters that really explain a lot about the terminology of this. Now can you talk a little bit about salt? So, so we're talking about we've, we've had a, a, a wrong story about cholesterol. What's the wrong story about salt?
2: Okay, so salt is also like you know the other bad guy in the Jesse James story, but not, not necessarily the ringleader. So everybody's really, really worried about salt. And I'm not telling you salt is good, you know, I mean, we, we consume way too much, okay? The yeah. question is, how much is too much? Well, once upon a time, before there was refrigeration, before there were steam ships, we used to have uh, schooners that used to go out into the you know, Atlantic, and they would fish, okay? And they would catch the fish, and it would be months sometimes before they'd ever see shore, and they had to pack the fish in such a way as to prevent it from rotting.
1: Uh-huh.
2: What did they do? They packed it in salt. With
1: salt, yes.
2: The so salt was a preservative. Okay, salted fish. Okay, still, still. I mean, you can still find that. Okay, point is, in those days, we used to consume 15 grams of salt a day, average, and we didn't have hypertension. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because our kidneys were perfectly adept at being able to excrete all the excess salt. We had good kidneys that worked, got rid of the excess salt. So 15 grams of salt, no problem. But now, today, we're finding that we have hypertension with even our current median consumption of salt, which is 6.9 grams. Uh And we're told we have to get our sodium consumption down to 2.3 grams or below in order to prevent hypertension. So, how come 150 years ago we could eat 15 grams and be fine, and today we can't even eat 2.3 grams and we have a problem? What up with that? So, the answer to that is very simple. Turns out the kidney is adept at excreting salt if there's no insulin around. If you are insulin sensitive, your kidney will excrete the salt. If you are insulin resistant, insulin prevents sodium excretion, it increases sodium resorption at the level of the renal tubule. It's bringing all the sodium back in, therefore all the water back in. And that's why our blood pressures are going up.
1: Yeah. So So, so you you said the magic word insulin.
2: So it is true that salt is an issue.
1: Yeah.
2: The reason salt's an issue is because of the sugar. Right. Because of the insulin resistance. And if you got rid of the sugar, you probably wouldn't have to get rid of the salt.
1: Okay. So we're getting back to the story of insulin. I want to get to the processed food and all the other stuff, but is there something that you can, again, summarize about like a uh, metabolic syndrome and insulin and how we need to focus more on that? Because you mentioned that was one of the uh, key thing we had to study even more than blood sugar.
2: Right. So the point I make in the book, and you know, this is sort of the take-home message about metabolic syndrome. Right on. Give it to us. These diseases that we call diseases, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular, cancer, dementia, da, 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 okay, these are actually not diseases. These are symptoms of disease. They are not the disease themselves. And you'll notice that not one of those eight diseases has a cure. They have treatments, but in fact, the treatments don't really even work. They treat the symptoms. They don't treat the actual disease. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. (laughs) It might help the headache, ain't going to help the brain tumor. That's what we're doing. So you give statins for the high LDL, but LDL is not the problem. You give antihypertensives for high blood pressure. The high blood pressure is actually not the problem. You give oral hypoglycemics or insulin for high blood glucose. The high blood glucose is actually not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. Mm -hmm. And you could solve each of those if you actually address the cause of the problem. These are the symptoms of the problem. So what is the cause? So in the book, I make it clear that there are actually eight subcellular pathologies. Eight, count them eight, I call them the hateful eight. And they're normal processes that go on inside cells. When they're working properly, when they're working right, you will be 110 playing tennis. When they are working wrong, you will be 40 with two stumps on a dialysis machine waiting for your next stroke. Hmm. All right. And that's all food. Okay. The difference between yeah. the 40 year old in the wheelchair and the 110 year old playing tennis is all food. Say- the question is, what are those pathologies, subcellular pathologies that are actually driving these diseases? And I will name them. There are eight of them. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four. Four. Insulin resistance, five, membrane instability, six, inflammation, seven, methylation, eight, autophagy. Now, none of those have an ICD 11 code. None of those are things that doctors know about or treat. None of those are billable. None of those are, quote, diseases, unquote. But they are belying all of these things that we do call diseases. Problem is, when you look at the molecular mechanisms of each of those processes, none of them are druggable. There's no medicine that fixes these, but they are foodable. They get to the place where the problem is, whereas the drugs don't. Most of these problems are actually due to mitochondrial dysfunction. So mitochondrial dysfunction is basically chronic disease. And so when your mitochondria don't work right, then you need more energy to go into the cell to try to get more ATP out of the cell. Right. The problem is the mitochondria is where it should happen. And if they're not working, okay, then your insulin has to go up in order to get the extra energy in, which is not helping anything. And the insulin's the bad guy in the story.
1: Those eight features that you were talking about are dynamics all lead to hyperinsulinemia. Is that what you're saying?
2: Well, they're all, yeah, they're all associated with hyperinsulinemia, some directly, some indirectly, but yes.
1: Just to simplify it for our listeners so that they lead to or are associated with hyperinsulinemia, which then leads to these chronic diseases that we are dealing with, which is the bread and butter of family medicine. And That's correct.
2: So the key to that is don't worry about the calories, get the insulin down.
1: Exactly. I don't want to get too caught up in this because we have so much other stuff to talk about. Your book is called Metabolical. So we touched on the metabolic, but let's now touch on the implicit diabolical piece that's behind that word. And I think that's the food industry. So you have a great phrase it's not what is in the food, but what has been done to the food. So what has been done to the food to make it diabolical?
2: Right. So basically, real food is food that came out of the ground or animals that ate food that came out of the ground. That's real food. Everything else is processed in some fashion, okay? And it's easy to spot real food because real food doesn't have a food label because it doesn't need a food label. Only processed food has food labels. Is there a food label on a carrot or a radish or a broccoli or even a hunk of meat? No, okay? The point is that once something's been done to the food, then they have to put a food label on. Now, it can be simple, so there are four classes of processing devised by my colleague Dr. Carlos Montero at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. It's called the Nova system food classification. So we can do it with apples. So class 1 would be an apple <clears throat> untouched. Class 2 would be say an apple slices. Okay, so mechanically dispersed, maybe stems removed. Class 3 would be apple sauce okay, where the fiber has been macerated and possibly sugar has been added and possibly something else. And number four would be an apple pie, okay? So an apple is not the same as an apple pie. Right. Okay. The food industry would like to equate the two, but they're not equatable.
1: If I can just say also that applies to meat too, because bacon is not the same as a slice of ham.
2: Absolutely. And the data show that unprocessed meat has a very limited hazard risk ratio for diabetes or cancer on the order of about 1.13. So about 13% increase, which is not a lot and certainly below public health concerns. Processed red meat though, has a much higher hazard risk ratio. Half as much uh, has a hazard risk ratio of 1.51. So that's much higher. And it's been shown that it's it's the processing of the meat that leads to the cancer more than the actual raw red meat. And in addition, people think that the problem with red meat is the saturated fat. That Mm. is not true. That has now been debunked. It is not the saturated fat. Now, I'm not saying red meat's a walk in the park and I'm not saying that you can eat all the red meat you want. It turns out red meat has Choline, which gets converted to TMAO (trimethylamine oxide), which is the stickiest substance made in the body, and you know lines our arteries. This is work from Stanley Hazen's group at Cleveland Clinic. Okay, okay. it's got iron, which is an oxidative stress that we talked about before. Corn-fed beef and chicken and fish are high in branched-chain amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids are metabolized virtually identically to that of sugar, and uh-huh. you end up with increased liver fat and insulin resistance too. So It's not that red meat is great, and I'm not here saying everybody eat all the red meat you want, but it's not the saturated fat. And it turns out dairy saturated fat, which is equated with red meat saturated fat, because they're both saturated fat, is completely different. Yeah. Red meat saturated fat is C16 or C18, even chain fatty acids. Dairy saturated fat is C15 or 17, Odd chain fatty acids metabolize differently and also have a different phospholipid signature, which is protective against heart disease and diabetes.
1: Exactly. I actually heard you say that last night. I was listening listening to your book and I actually heard you say, well, I thought that uh, dairy is actually protective.
2: That's right. Dairy is protective against these diseases. Now, the problem is we take the fat out of the dairy, out of the milk, you know, because we think that's the bad guy. And so then the milk tastes like dishwater. Okay, and then we got to get the kids to drink it. So what do we do? We add the chocolate, you know, the, the high fructose corn syrup. So we basically taken something out that was protective and put something in that's actually detrimental. That's food processing in a nutshell.
1: There's a great section on processed food, additives. How foods are not really foods like chicken is more than just the chicken that we think we're okay. buying, uh, stuff like that's all really interesting. You just touched on this. You mentioned the hunters versus the gatherers, the false dietary war of the keto versus vegan. Do you want to say something about that, please?
2: Sure. You know, the ketos and the vegans seem to be like, you know, on opposing sides fighting with yeah. each other. You know, the vegans want the cows gone, and the ketos, you know, are basically saying, you know, I'll die before I eat a, a carrot. You know, I mean, it's it's just crazy. Possible. makes no sense. Bottom line is both work, and you know, I'm not against either of them. I'm not for either of them. I'm not here to espouse a diet. I'm not here to diss a diet. The only diet I'm dissing is the processed food diet. Mm-hmm. So you can do processed food keto, and there are all sorts of things like keto ice cream in the in the supermarket now. Okay, do you really think it says six grams of carbohydrate on the Uh, label of the keto ice cream. Do you really think that you can consume those six grams of carbohydrate and not have your insulin spike? And as soon as your insulin spikes, guess what? You're not in ketosis anymore. You're not on a ketogenic diet anymore. Now you're on a high fat, medium carbohydrate diet, which is like the worst diet of all. So if you're really going to be on a ketogenic diet, you have to be fastidious. You have to stay in nutritional ketosis. You have to monitor your ketones either with urine or breath. Mm. Okay. There are ways to do it. And I'm, and if you do that, that's good. So I'm not against the ketogenic diet. We used to use it in our clinic for the worst of the worst kids with insulin, hypersecretion or resistance. So I'm for it. Okay. I use it, but you have to do it right. Mm -hmm. Conversely, you have to do vegan, right. Okay. And Coke Doritos and Oreos are vegan. Yeah. So you can do ultra processed food, vegan, really easy. And basically food stripped of its fiber. You're not feeding the gut. You're not protecting the liver. Right. And so basically as metabolically dangerous as anything you accuse anybody else of. So you can do it right or you can do it wrong on either side. And in addition, when you do vegan right or when you do keto right, it's all real food. Exactly. All real food. It's processed food that undoes both of those. So really the vegans and the ketos are on the same side. It's the processing, it's the food industry and the pharma industry and the government that's on the other side.
1: Exactly. And before we get to that, I want to ask you a question that I've been wondering for a long time. There's a number of things in your book, you know, in terms of if you eat the right diet, you'll understand. Now, one of the things is that dementia may be considered part of metabolic syndrome. Do you think that we can actually prevent the scourge of uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's if if we changed our diet? And what about a person who has Alzheimer's? Could there actually be reversal or retardation? If they right. started eating properly.
2: So these are all very good questions, which we do not have final answers to. Okay. I'm going to be very clear on this. Yeah. I cannot in good conscience tell you, you can reverse Alzheimer's. Right. However, however, having said that, one of my good friends, Dr. Dale Bredesen, wrote a book called The End of Alzheimer's.
1: Okay? Wow. No.
2: It's not the end. <laughs> that was what the publisher said. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This publisher was my publisher, and I know all about how they name books. Okay. Uh-huh. That was not his original title. He's taken uh-huh. a lot of flack for it. All right. But here's what I do know: he 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 likens Alzheimer's disease to like having a house with 36 holes in the roof. You can fix one hole, you can fix two holes, you can fix 35 holes, and you're still gonna have a wet house. In order to fix the house, you got to fix all 36 holes in the roof. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that can cause Alzheimer's. There are a lot of things associated with the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's. Diet happens to be a lot of them, but you might have Alzheimer's for a completely different reason. So, what I would say is that if we ate better and we got ourselves insulin sensitive, a significant proportion of patients with Alzheimer's would stop. The process.
1: Yeah, it's like an epigenetic process. And some of them
2: likely would reverse. And actually, Dr. Bredesen has data on that and is publishing it right now. He's already got the preprint out in MedXRIV. But that doesn't mean your Alzheimer's yeah. will get better because your hole in the roof might be a different hole in the roof. There's heavy metals and there's ApoE4 and other right. things that are not specifically related to diet
1: you know, just think about all those nursing homes and the food that we give our elderly people in nursing Absolutely. homes. We don't even want to go there. Let's look at now the treatment. You mentioned big pharma, modern medicine. I loved your phrase where you said, doctors, well, how are we creating the problems? You said that we're sheep. So how has modern medicine been part of the diabolical treatment and, uh, you know, big pharma behind?
2: All right. Well, so first of all, you know, I majored in nutritional biochemistry in college at MIT. I was really interested in this stuff. Uh, I thought, you know, I thought I was going into nutrition as a, uh, you know, after college, I went to medical school. I went to Cornell University Medical College in New York City, and they beat it out of me, basically told me, no, that was important. Everything I learned the previous years, you know, I'm never going to use that again. It's not important. You yeah. know, the problem is calories. The problem is, you know, uh, exercise. The problem is, you know, drugs, etc. cetera, because that's ultimately what the curriculum had. Because big pharma sponsors pretty much all of the medical curriculum, they underwrite the medical curriculum, and that's been true since the Flexner report of 1910. All right, so I was told to basically forget all that stuff, and you know, hey, who was I to question? You know, I'm a medical student. I'm supposed to say to the the gurus, you know, that they're wrong. So yeah, I went along with it. I practiced like they told me, and the problem was my patients didn't get better. No, they got worse. They got worse. Yeah. Well, in 1994 we discovered this hormone called leptin. And leptin turns out not to be a breakthrough treatment, but it turned out to be a breakthrough pathway Mm -hmm. in terms of our understanding of obesity. And at the time I was working at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. And I had all of these kids who were massively obese after their brain tumors because the hypothalamus had been fried by either the surgery or the radiation. Yeah, It was left to me to try to figure out what to do about them. And what we figured out was these kids were over-releasing insulin. And the reason they were over-releasing insulin is because their brains thought they were starving because they couldn't see their leptin because of the damage. So we've suppressed their insulin with a drug. And lo and behold, not only did they stop eating, not only did they start losing weight, but they started exercising spontaneously. Hmm. We ended up proving that in the double-blind placebo control trial. Ultimately, what we showed was that the biochemistry precedes the behavior. Biochemistry drives the behavior. Okay, this was very, very important. Okay, and what? So what we realized was that all of these doctors basically saying you eat too much, you exercise too little, we're missing the boat. Yes, it's true. You do eat too much. You, ex- you do exercise too little. But why?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, and they just basically chalked it up as to character flaw. Right. Turns right. out the reason was leptin resistance, and there are things you can do about that. And we did that in our clinic every day for 17 years, that I was the head of it. Mm-hmm. The point is, doctors are not taught that. So doctors are part of the problem because they blame the patient.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so so you uh you, you kind of brought yourself into there into the equation here. And I was actually going to ask you about that. In the time that I've known you, which has been uh since between Fat Chance and Hacked, you went from I guess you're buying the party line to more and more and more becoming overtly critical of the medical slash pharmaceutical piece. So how did you go from this sort of understanding of the hormone of leptin and and, uh, insulin to the stand that you're taking now, which is, hey, the pharmaceutical, I think you used the word immoral hazard, like that's pretty out there.
2: Yeah, it's pretty, it is, it is.
1: That's not (laughs) something you would have done five years or 10 years ago.
2: What I realize is they've rigged the game. Basically, I've had three aha moments. Okay. The first aha moment was the kids at St. Jude, that where the biochemistry drives the behavior. That was the first aha moment. The second aha moment came in 2006 when I realized that sugar and alcohol were basically metabolized the same way in the liver, causing the same disease. And that's why my children that I was taking care of had the diseases of alcohol without the alcohol.
1: Amazing. Type two
2: diabetes and fatty liver disease were the diseases of alcohol except that kids don't drink alcohol but boy oh boy do they sure as hell consume sugar and that's what basically drove their chronic metabolic disease and we started showing that when we got the sugar out of their diet they got better yeah so that was the second aha all right and that was the reason why I had a right fat chance
1: yeah
2: and then and then in 2016 was the third aha but it wasn't my aha it was actually my colleague's aha my colleagues at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glance, found the paper trail of the sugar industry.
1: Oh, my gosh. With their
2: fingerprints all over it. Huh. And they had paid off the head of the Department of Nutrition of the Harvard School of Public Health, Fred Stare, and his assistant professor, Mark Hegstead, who ended up becoming the head of the USDA. They paid them in $50,000 in today's dollars back in 1967 to produce two review articles for the New England Journal of Medicine that basically exonerated sugar and fingered saturated fat as the bad guy in heart disease. Right. And their complicity with this was not even disclosed. And that's when I realized, wait a second, wait a second.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. This, you know, there's a subterfuge going on here. Okay. There's more to this story, and since that time, there's been more and more that's come out about industry uh, disinformation and then putting their thumbs on the scale. My colleague at the New York Times, Anad O'Connor, you know, wrote a whole article on Coca-Cola and the Global Energy Balance Network and how they basically tried to shift blame away from their product and the lack of exercise as the cause of obesity and several others, Exercise is medicine, and True Health Initiative, and all of these things that they have basically been underneath promulgating in an attempt to try to deflect and deny. And so I realized this is tobacco all over again. And I sort of knew it, but I didn't know just what the extent of it was. That made me realize that they had rigged the game. And that's why in the book, I call it immoral hazard. And that's the third aha. And that's the other reason why I had to write this book, Metabolical. So we used to say, you are what you eat. Fat Chance said, no, you are what you do with what you eat. Okay. Metabolism matters more than calories. And what this book says is, you are what they did with what you eat.
1: (laughs) Right. Which is much more political than ever before.
2: And so this half book is half science and half expose yeah you know, if it were if it were a hollywood tell all you know you'd call it a kiss and tell okay but yeah. it's since it's about diabetes it's really more a piss and tell
1: yeah we also talk about big government you know the fda you know for people who are interested in this there's an expose piece to this i would agree certainly
2: right so that and that, and that's you know and the good news about it is <clears throat> i retired in 2017.
1: Yes. Because you know,
2: if I was still employed at UCSF, you know, I'd be in big trouble.
1: Uh, well, actually I was going to ask you. I guess they can't fire you, but they can still chase <laughs> you. They can still do give you Well, they
2: can't <laughs> UCSF's not gonna do anything to me. Oh. It's what the food industry might do, but Yes, I, that's what I was book, thinking. Book's been out for two weeks and so it's been all quiet on the Western Front.
1: Okay, because this book is much more explicit than the other two. And the other two are already explicit enough. So for people, if you want to get some of that story, it's well worth reading and you've documented it well. But let's get to, I want to make sure we get to this piece. What can we do now as people, the little people, both politically and also just personally?
2: You're you're pretty tall. I don't consider you one of the little people.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) thank you. But you have a really nice piece about how people should bring their paper with them to the doctor's office with the request. Do you want to elaborate on like, what can we do? Yeah.
2: for ourselves so the point is that the doctors don't know what they're doing okay right. and, I'm, and i'm a doctor so i can say that you can't say it but i can all right they don't know what they're doing and the reason is because they were never trained they could know what they were doing but they haven't been trained to know what they're doing and part of the reason they don't is because big is in charge all right big pharma's basically told them they have to prescribe medicines they don't know what nutrition is they don't even know how to fix a nutritional problem, because it's never been explained to them what the problem is. Doctors need basically a remedial course in nutrition. I actually hope that this book will actually become a medical school text. That
1: would nutrition. be
2: wonderful. Yeah. I actually wrote it for that purpose, and there are 1,054 references.
1: Yeah. I got to tell you that part about the liver metabolism, I've already listened to that twice because I didn't even know all of that stuff. And so I thank you for that. So this book is useful on many different levels from the clinician to the uh, patient person. But you know, it'll tell you what to ask for, for blood work, for example, right. and a, right. a sort of mini primer on how to interpret it.
2: Right. So basically your doctor will look at a lab slip and go, oh yeah, those are normal. And that's yeah. it. If you take the word normal, if you're the patient and you t- let your doctor say the word normal, okay, you haven't done your job as a patient, okay? There is no such thing as normal.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> if you say if you accept normal, you have basically not done your due diligence. What do you mean by normal?
1: I say it all the time. What is normal? Yeah. Right. Boy,
2: In psychiatry, there is no normal, as we know. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, the problem is that doctors don't know how to interpret those lab tests. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I wrote a full chapter on using the lab data to diagnose yourself, not because I want patients necessarily diagnosing themselves, but I want patients to basically quiz their doctors, hmm. get the real story. And I want them to they basically say to the doctor, here's what I want and here's why I want it. Yeah. All right. And then maybe the doctor will basically say, well, gee, maybe I ought to figure out what this yeah. is.
1: And this is very understandable, folks. So please, please uh, read that. You also talk about how they can go to a grocery store and what to look for, like all that stuff as well.
2: Exactly. You know, basically what you're looking for is food without a label is what you're looking for. Yeah. Right. And tends to populate around the edges of the grocery store rather than in the center In the center aisles. If you've gone in the aisles, you've gone off the rails. That's what that's the bottom line.
1: One of the phrases that you use a lot, and I don't know if you can describe this in three sentences, but we need to protect the liver and feed the gut, essentially. What's the takeaway there for the person
2: listening? Basically, I have a whole chapter in the book on what constitutes healthy.
1: Yes, yes.
2: The FDA, its definition of healthy is a joke. Low on saturated fat, replete with vitamin D, and enough potassium and magnesium for bodily functions. That is the stupidest thing I ever heard. Okay, The USDA doesn't even have a definition of healthy, and that's on purpose, because if they had a definition, then none of the food companies could actually use the word healthy on their packaging.
1: Right. Okay.
2: So they're not going to define healthy because that's bad for the food industry. So in the book, I actually go through the empiric science and explain what healthy is. And it's relatively simple, relatively simple. Six words, two clauses, six words. Three sentences. No, two sentences. Okay. One, protect the liver. Two, feed the gut. Protect the liver from the onslaught of the tsunami of mono and disaccharides, from branched chain amino acids, from glyphosate, from heavy metals, from iron. Feed the gut. Feed the gut what? Well, the primary food of the gut is fiber. Mm -hmm. Fiber is the food for the bacteria, okay? You don't chew it up. You can't absorb it. You can't generate any energy from it, but your bacteria can. And the point is that the fiber has been removed for shelf life and to reduce depreciation, but that was the food for the gut. And so if you don't feed your bacteria, your bacteria will feed on you. Wow. It will eat the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, thereby denuding your intestine And allowing the bacteria access to your systemic circulation, and you will end up with cytokines and lipopolysaccharides and whole bacteria in some cases getting across into your systemic circulation through a process called leaky gut, which then leads to systemic inflammation, which leads to insulin resistance, and you're off to the races again.
1: Exactly. Okay. good. Now, I'm going to just ask one more question and then, Chrissy, you're going to close us off. But out of all of the food processing that's happened since your last book in the last five or so years, do you think because, you know, we're interested in food addiction here, has food actually become more addictive? Sure.
2: Add more sugar it's more addictive. Sugar is an addictive substance because it is a hedonic substance. Any substance or behavior, for that matter, that releases dopamine in the extreme is addictive. Yeah. Okay. It may not be as addictive as some other things, but it's addictive nonetheless. So cocaine, heroin, very addictive. Nicotine, pretty darn addictive. Alcohol, a little less addictive. There are plenty of social drinkers. Okay. Sugar, probably about the same as alcohol.
1: I think you're right about that. So, you know,
2: there are some people who can do social sugar and there are some people who basically are sugar addicts and they will tell you because they say, oh. I have a horrible sweet tooth. <laughs> right. That's sugar addiction until proven otherwise. Yeah. And basically the reason they're telling you that is because it's socially acceptable and they're looking for a co-enabler.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They're looking for somebody to have an ice cream sundae with.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know,
2: someday, someday, I mean, you don't see people coming up and saying, you know, I have a horrible cocaine addiction. <laughs> That's socially unacceptable. Yeah. But you can do that with sugar. Currently, my goal is for, you know, that to become as uh problematic as advancing your cocaine or your heroin addiction
1: we are all on the same page with that one absolutely so
2: anything that stimulates dopamine in the extreme leads to addiction and sugar is the addiction everyone can afford and it's the addiction that we give to babies and and your grandma is a pusher
1: exactly okay on that note chrissy i'm going to give it to you oh my god
0: So can we just touch on a bit about the fructose, right? Because in our community, sometimes people are afraid of fruit and we That's a whole food. And can you just explain the difference?
2: Yeah, the difference is the fiber.
0: Hmm.
2: So in the same way the fiber was for your bacteria, the fiber reduces the rate of sugar absorption from the gut into the bloodstream. It forms a gel on the inside of the duodenum, preventing early absorption. So even though you consumed it, you didn't get it. It was for your bacteria and the bacteria chew it up for its own purposes. So yes, you ate it, but you didn't get it. You didn't because you didn't absorb it, because the fiber mitigated that effect. But as soon as you squeeze it and freeze it, now there's no fiber. Now it's just like a soda. So eating whole fruit with the seeds, with the peel, with the fiber is fine. Okay, it's when you purify it, crystallize it, when you uh, macerate it, when you turn it into a class four ultra processed food substance, like apple pie, now you got a problem.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that so much. I just wanted to thank you so much because I'm on the team that submitted the proposal for food addiction to the ICD and you supported it. And it was just so wonderful to see that. So do you think this is something that we are going to get to see recognized by the World Health Organization in our lifetime or the next generation's lifetime?
2: I think it will happen. It's going to be a slow process. All- tectonic shifts take a generation. Okay. Every cultural tectonic shift takes a generation. Why the reason, I mean, look, think of it this way. We've had four cultural tectonic shifts in the United States in the last 30 years. And here they are four. bicycle helmets and seatbelts, mm. looking in public places, drunk, driving, condoms, and bathrooms. Okay. 30 years ago, if any legislator stood up in a state house, To propose any legislation like that, they get on left right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get -hmm. out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. All right. Today they're all facts of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. And why'd it take 30 years? Answer: we taught the children. The children grew up and they voted. And the naysayers are dead.
1: They're dead. I was just waiting for you to say that. (laughs) Okay. You have to vacate.
2: In fact, fact, (laughs) People do not change their opinion. And the reason they don't is because they didn't have a grounds for the opinion in the first place. Mm. We call those people zealots. Mm. They, they're doing it on faith. Okay? If they did it on science, then we would see a change. But they don't. But they die. Science advances one funeral at a time. Oh my gosh! We we will. Oh, that's Max Planck said that many years ago, Uh. and it's been proven true by the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's in the book. Bottom line: We will see this change. We will. Okay, it's going to take a while, Mm -hmm. so we shouldn't expect to see it quickly, but we will see it. It's already there. It's already happening. It's just that the elites, the higher ups, the people in charge of the uh, keys to the kingdom, as it were, <laughs> the ivory tower guys, you know, in charge of the DSM-5 and the WHO, yeah. they made their reputation on what came before. So they're not looking to overturn it. Yeah. So it'll take a while.
0: Oh, I appreciate that so much. Uh, We have a signature question, and it is, what would you tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar addiction?
2: That it exists. You know, it's not like I knew that. You know, to be honest with you, if I'd known that, maybe I could have helped my own uh, weight and uh, health uh, myself early on i hmm. didn't quite realize this early on it, it wasn't obvious to me and It wasn't obvious to a lot of people oh. um i mean alcohol it was easy because you had the acute effect cocaine was easy you had the acute effect heroin was easy you had the acute effect yeah. sugar it's a little harder you know you don't have so many acute effects it's much more the chronic effect mm. okay yeah. so it took a while you know it took a while for caffeine too
0: yeah
2: I would say that, you know, that it exists.
0: And where can our listeners find you? As if we don't know. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a website, robertlustig.com. The book website is metabolical.com. There's a lot of YouTube videos. There's, uh, you know, the famous one, Sugar, the Bitter Truth. You know, that was 2009. We have way more data. And, you know, I've done some more recent public education that, you know, will bring you a little more up to date. Having said that, I'm, I'm not hard to find.
1: Yeah. Well, I know you're going to say goodbye, uh, Chrissy, but if I can just jump in ahead. I just would like to thank you, Robert, for showing up today and talking about your book. This is a must-read book, folks. It's an extension of these last two books. And uh, I just thank you for your tiresome work in this field, in obesity it's and food addiction. Thank it's you. My, it's
2: my pleasure. Sweet. I've got to go, unfortunately, right. now. Okay. Thanks. Right. Okay. Right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, okay bye.